Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to IGN Unfiltered, a new show uh, hosted by me. I'm Ryan McCaffrey from IGN, and this is going to be a one-hour, let's get to know you. We're going we're gonna to dive in. We're talking today to Josh Holmes. You're the studio head on Halo 5 at 343, Josh. Uh, we'll talk some Halo 5, we'll talk some Halo 4, but I want to I get in the time machine with you. Let's get the DeLorean up to 88. I want to rewind, because it's your career, it turns out, is super fascinating. Most people probably only know you as you were the creative director on Halo 4. Yep. And, you know, you, you, were, you, were, the, you were the not Bungie. How dare you? You're not <laughs> Bungie, and you're making Halo, so nope, we'll get to that part. Yeah. But uh, you, were, you were born and raised in Vancouver, and in what was it, uh, teenage-ish years, you, you uh, went to L.A. to become an actor. So... Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I was actually I was born in Vancouver, <clears throat> British Columbia, uh, and uh, and I actually in high school I got into acting and um, started doing theater and and directing theater uh, for our school as well as uh, doing some plays. And I ended up going to uh, some sort of theater fest, and and an agent came up and talked to me. And talked me into doing some auditions and and for commercials or TV. I did or? Com yeah commercials, uh, some TV stuff locally in in Vancouver, uh, and then ended up flying down to LA to to do a pilot for a show that never got made that was called I don't know if it was Country Estates or something. I don't know. It was like a nine hundred two one zero ripoff <laughs> at that time because this was in the in the early nineties. Um, well, tell me about your character. Who are you going to play in this? In this, so the pilot got shot. No, they, we we did a bunch of test footage for yeah. it, but they never took it to to full uh, to a full um, pilot. So, right, right. Yeah. But who who were who were you going to play in that? I don't even remember his name. <laughs> it was a lifetime like, ago. I, it was so long ago. Yeah, I mean, I did some some Canadian TV and stuff, but uh, yeah. Then uh, the the probably the the coolest audition that I went out for was uh, for the the Joel Schumacher Batman because I'm, really? I'm like a huge huge yeah for Robin. And I'm like seriously? a huge seriously, and so for the longest time I had like this vendetta against Chris O'Donnell, <laughs> but then the movie came out and the joke was on him because it was so terrible. Um, Look at whose career is better now. <laughs> I think it's yours. <laughs> That's not fair, but Chris I mean, is, I'm sure a very nice guy. Yeah, Chris, I'm sure is great, but I know I'm a huge Batman fan, and so having the the, the chance to go out and audition for that was like a dream. Uh, and, and that's that's awesome. Yeah. Had you read the script, or yeah, yeah, I, I auditioned for Joel Schumacher, so it was uh, it was wow. in Seattle actually. I, I drove down to do it in Seattle. Interesting. Had, yeah. Did you have any idea what that movie was going to become? No, I mean I was just totally starstruck on yeah. the idea of like, wow, this is Batman. This is as a kid growing up reading comic books, he's my favorite character, and so having the the chance to to have anything to do with that. Had Kilmer been amazing. cast at that point yet? I don't remember. Don't remember? Yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah, because yeah. it's like, if, if you're, you're, I, you're I, like, wow, <laughs> Kilmer and Nicole Kidman. And yeah. I actually, I sent in a, a tape for that, which was how I got called in. I did like a tape in my living room um, randomly. And so, yeah, it was just. How, how would you have played Robin? I'm curious. Uh, I don't know, man. That movie, <laughs> that movie hurt my soul. Like, it was, 
It and it was so just a campy. precursor for Batman and Robin. Yeah, yeah. The real exactly. That's when it got really painful. That's so, cool. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So so I yeah I was an actor for a while, and then and then uh, I uh, actually sent a, a a letter in to EA because there was a elect, electronic art, the electronic yeah, arts EA in Seattle in, or, in, uh, or in or EA Canada. They were in Burnaby, the the Vancouver yeah. studio. Was it the massive campus back then? It wasn't yet. It was not yet the gigantic uh, campus they have today. But um, I wrote a letter in and just said, like, hey, I, you know, I, I love games. I've played and designed games my whole yeah. life. I, I would do anything for a shot to, to design games, and I'll, I'll do anything. And they brought me in for an interview as a tester, and, uh, and they ended up hiring me on for the summer. And then uh, I tested a bunch of games for them. You know, it was crazy long hours. We were doing like 100, 120 hour sure. weeks at that time. What were some of the games that you were on? These were all sports games that, that they were building at that time. So FIFA, NBA was NBA, up there at the time. There was a, a racing game on, uh, uh, at that time, Need for Speed. Um, so we were testing all of those games. And then um, I started, you know, kind of building designs and pitches and stuff and trying to get the attention of, of producers at EA and, mm. and convince them you know, to give me a shot. Uh, and that sort of started when the, the advice that someone gave me, because I was like, oh, you know, I want to be a game designer. And they're like, well, what have you designed? And, and I'm like, well, I'm waiting for someone to give me a shot. And they're like, right. you can't wait. Like, go out and it's make it happen. Worse. Yeah. So, uh, and then I got a shot to, to start in production um, at EA. And production was kind of like, at that time, kind of a mixture of, of project management and creative. Um, they didn't have kind of traditional designer roles at that time. And, and just started kind of working on games and working my way up from the trenches. Had you, had you always thought, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to assume you've been playing games for much of your life back, back into your childhood. Oh, yeah. I mean, games were always, that was my escape in, in life, you know. Like, I, I would play them all day. As a kid, yeah. and uh, my, you know, my dad, uh, I remember brought home uh, Commodore 64 when I was a kid, nice. which was like old school, old school computer, um, and a bunch of games on on discs, and uh, I would just sit there and and play games, and then kind of think about the, the types of games I would want to build, and started trying to code my own games, and I am not an accomplished <laughs> coder at all, uh, so it was very, very rudimentary, simple stuff. But uh, did you did you sketch out? Like little design docs on on ruled paper and stuff yep. like that. Yeah, would be doing like board games and role playing games uh, on paper with friends, and um, you know, also drawing comic books and stuff, and, and writing stories. And like for me, it was just always any kind of creative outlet. Growing up was was what I was kind of oriented towards. What was what, so? What was your favorite video game as a kid? As a kid, oh, man, I mean. So many. I think probably the the game that I loved just loved was uh, Sid, Meier, Sid Meier's uh, Pirates. Uh, we just had a big time argument at IGN about some you know the biggest game, the best games ever, and there were the people that uh, there were there was a staunch defender defending group of uh, a Pirates Defense Force, if you will, Sid Meier's Pirates Defense Force, and they were adamant about the game because it's it's really it was almost uh, told the future of games, right? And how sort of its, its design ideas and how open it is. Yeah, I mean, it was, there was so much that you could do and there were these different kind of modes of play and, and you could go and explore and you had a legacy as a character that would develop over time and it just felt like 
the world was open, you know, and, and uh, I love that that feeling. And at the same time, it, it I think kind of almost operated as a, as a history lesson for, you know, the, the history of piracy. There was so much uh, information in there that, that I found fascinating as well, so. So you, uh, you start as a test, and I think, is that, People today, they think, oh, I just, I can, I know how to design games, but you have the willingness to just be able to say, I'll do anything to get to, it, testing is usually, it's from developers I talk, that seems like one of the most common ways to, to get into design and get into the industry. I think at least when I started in the industry, it definitely was, yeah. um, and it's a great way to understand the development process, to understand, um, you know, what it takes to build a game over time. And I think by going through that systematic process of trying to break a game in any way you possibly can, right. it develops a lot of your understanding of how to build systems, you know, how to think about systems at a foundational level, and as you scale them up, be thinking in terms of all of the different ways that a user can interact with them. And so it, it builds a lot of that analytical thinking amongst um, designers and, and game developers. And, and testing is not the, the glamour job that no. people think it is, right? <laughs> In fact, it, do you even wanna play uh, one of the games you test by the time the, the, it's over? Uh, it's hard, it's hard. I mean, you, you have played that game, and this is true of when you're building a game as well. I think, I think the, the true test is that if it's a, if it's a great game, um, yes, you're still gonna get a bunch of enjoyment out of playing it, um, but you have beat that game to death. Like if you think of the games that as a player you obsess over and yeah. you spend just hours and hours and hours and days of your life, now multiply that by 100. You know, it's, you, you have seen everything that that game has to offer and then some by the would time you, you're done. When you close your eyes to sleep at night, would you see like parts of a level or parts, parts of a game? Like was it that sort of ingrained yeah. in you by the end of the project? If you were sleeping, <laughs> like, there you sleep was not a lot of sleep. There was a lot of coffee and, and late nights and and, uh, and junk food. But uh, yeah, I mean, you you would kind of go away, or I would go away, and I would think about like what are some what are some of the things that I haven't tried yet. Like, oh, what, I wonder if this would work. What, what would happen right. if I did this and then this and then this, and could I get it to break that way? Um, so yeah, I think I think you know, it's just it's. You have to be obsessive about it. Are the are the designers and producers at that point? Are they nice to you, or are they like menacing overlords? Just fix it, kid. I think. I, I mean, I think it's it depends on the development team. I think if a development team really understands the value of of their test team, they're going to appreciate what they yeah. do. I mean, they're helping you make the game better, um, and you need the test team to really partner closely with with the development team, so they understand the game that you're trying to build and what, how you want it to work, and then they understand how you've gone about building it so they can start to deconstruct it in their mind and mm -hmm. sort of identify things that you might not have thought of. So uh, I met you back when you were at Propaganda Games doing yep. the Turok reboot, which we'll get to, but it turns out you were also one of the creators of the Def Jam fighting <laughs> game series. Yeah. Tell me about that. Did you, did you pitch it? Where, where does this come from? How do you get involved with this? So, this, this was a really well-regarded uh, series back at the time for, for EA. It was, but it's it's a crazy story. It's a crazy story. You tell. That's yeah. what we're here okay. for. So, so I was uh, I was working at EA, and um, I had been moved off of 
some of the internal sports titles and was working in a new IP group that was that was sort of generating new ideas. Mm -hmm. And we had built, originally we built this uh, pitch and, and a little mini prototype for a game that was so crazy ambitious called Gray Man, which was kind of like mixing together um, Hitman and GTA, but before GTA or Hitman. Right. Um, and number one, everyone was like, well, nobody wants to play you know, someone who's who's not the who's hero, bad. Or who's bad. Yeah. Like, so first of all, gamers never want to do anything where they play someone bad, and we're like, what? <laughs> and then secondly, like, the scope of what we're trying to build from an engine standpoint just isn't achievable, which mm -hmm. is fair. I, I think it, it wouldn't have been at that time. So from there, we got moved on to what became NBA Street, which was creating, like, a, an arcade basketball title. And, and I, an absolutely beloved series that came that was fantastic and was so successful that EA tried to replicate it. There was a very brief NFL Street. NFL Street, there was FIFA Street. They kind of took that initial idea that we came up with and and tried to bring it across multiple franchises. But I mean when we were the the idea that NBA Street started with was hey, we need to do arcade basketball title. And my friend and I, uh, Daryl Anselmo, who is my creative partner on that, and who's a creative director now, but he was my art director at that time, um, we started working um, on, a, on a pitch for what would be like a, a street ball yeah. game. People were like, you know, what's, didn't get it. And we were just really heavily into street ball culture and like and one mixtapes well, like, were coming out and stuff. NBA Jam existed at that time. NBA, so. NBA Jam did, but there, this was and like. People didn't get, still didn't get it? They. Well, I think, I think people sort of thought, hey, let's just do kind of this an NBA Jam-like experience, but not so much with the urban culture and the, and the street ball kind of uh, feel to it, which right. was something that we were really, really obsessed about. Um, so we ended up building that game, and that game was a surprising success because I don't think anybody thought that it was going to do much, and, and it ended up um, doing quite well. Yeah, did, I mean, did, uh, were there any problems with the NBA, like with the league, with with uh, a game like that, because you know, I know I, I heard that that was an issue with the NFL later. That they kind of, you know, the image of of uh, the sort of the, the violence of the league on its yeah. own. They were like, yeah, well, maybe we don't want an NFL street game with our name on it. Was that a problem? I mean, obviously you got the game out, but did the NBA kind of uh, push back or raise any red flags back at that time? So the. Producer, executive producer on the title at that time, Will Moselle, uh, who actually works for Xbox, um, uh, he, he was our executive producer at the time, and he was working with the league on that. And so there were definitely a lot of uh, conversations with the league about, you know, yeah. what would they allow, what would they not allow. Um, but, you know, it came together, and it, it, was, uh, it was a totally different experience, and it did some things where, you know, it changed the scoring system to a game to 21. It had... We introduced uh, the concept of the game breaker and and like just a bunch of really wacky, crazy stuff at the time that people didn't believe internally was going to work. Right. And, um, but we pressed ahead and, and made it made it happen. And and so we were really happy with the success of that. And then we started working on another new IP pitch. And we were put on a team that was working on an internal fighting game called uh, the code name was Kung Fu Fighting, and it was like. Originally, it started out as kind of like a 70s-inspired kind of classic kung fu, and then it became a little bit more contemporary. But we were, Daryl and I were working on that, and then the EA had the WCW license, and they had secured a, a developer, like great, amazing wrestling game developer uh, called Aki, that, based out of Japan, who's just 
renowned and beloved by wrestling game fans. Uh, and they, were, they had been working on this WCW game. They lost the license. Mm. And so then they started building some crazy stuff with like intergalactic wrestling and like giant magma men on, on volcano planets and stuff. And so uh, Paul Lee at the time came to, to Daryl and I and said, hey, this game's crazy. Can you guys do a creative treatment for, for this game? We put together a pitch, you know, hey, maybe you could do something like this over a weekend presented it and kind of went back to what we were doing. They were like, oh, we love your ideas. Come and sit in with, the, with us on this brainstorm of what we're going to do. And you, it sounds like you had no expectation of, of anything even coming out of it. No, we were like, hey, we're, we're, we don't want to work on a wrestling game, but if we did a wrestling game, here's yeah. kind of what we would do, um, maybe do this. And uh, so they brought us into a brainstorming session, and they, they were no longer thinking of the idea that we had pitched, but they were kind of brainstorming, like, what are things that we could do? And we had come off of NBA Street, we loved streetball culture, we loved urban culture, and we were like, well, you know, what if you did something with like, you know, hip hop artists and, and fighting, and, and they were like, that's genius, we should totally do that. And we're like, oh no, 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 and we're brainstorming. <laughs> this is a terrible idea, you should not do this. Like, whatever you do, don't do that. And they're like, no, 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 that's great, that's great. And then somebody was like, oh, you know, I, I have a friend at Def Jam, we should talk to them. We why, do... why were you so, like, why was it like, no way, don't because do that? Because it was ridiculous. It was like, you're gonna mix hip hop and fighting and like. Did you just think this will not go over well if this becomes a real thing? Like, how is this a thing? Like, right. how is this actually gonna work? And, but it, it just started gaining momentum and they're like, okay, you guys are on this now. You're, you guys are gonna be the, the creatives on this and you're gonna go and make this happen. And you've got like eight months because the game's like, you know, we don't have time to, to do much. So you're just gonna go and let's get this game done. And you gotta work with Aki in Japan and you're gonna have some people here in Canada and you gotta work with the licensor Def Jam. And I had a great relationship with, with the, the team at Def How Jam. How does Def Jam even take that phone call if you're saying it's that nuts? What, don't they just hang up on you? I think, I don't know. It was like this perfect storm of like, yeah, that sounds like an interesting idea. Let's go and talk about that. And everything just started rolling. And we, we ended up building the first game, which was Def Jam Vendetta, in like eight or nine months, which wow. was That's insane. Quick. Totally quick, we were able to leverage a lot of the, the engine that Aki had built and everything. And then for the second game, which was Fight for New York, that was where we kind of took a step back and we said, okay, well, now let's really think about this. Where, where would we want to take this universe and this story and, and who would we want to bring on board? And again, it was crazy because we went out and we, we got like 70 different celebrities and hip hop stars and everybody. Well, and that's where, like, do you, does, do you have to get these, these people individually to sign on? Yeah, every every one of them. We would have uh, Lauren Wurzer at, at Def Jam, who is my my counterpart there. She would go out and talk to the artists and kind of say, "Hey, would you be interested in doing this?" And then I would have to go and pitch them and be like, "This is what the story is. This is what your role would be." And I would write all of their their dialogue and work with them on stuff. And do they look at you like you're insane, or are they into it? A combination of the two. A combination of the two. It was so the the best story that, that I remember from that because I, I had to go to every single session, you know, do the script with all the with right. all the artists, VO. do all the VO, direct the VO stuff, um, and every every one of the artists we go to them and say like, okay, what do you want your special move to be? What do you want to look like? Like, what's your costume? And and we would take all that information. We met with Ghostface Killa, who's a, a Crazy personality, I love ghosts, but he's also a, a giant man. Like, Do you have to call him that? 
Mystic, Mystic Hilla. No, we call him, call him <laughs> Ghost. But, you know, so Ghost is a, he's a, he's an intimidating presence and he was hyped about what he wanted and he sort of described this costume that he wanted but the thing that he was really, really passionate about is he wanted this like gold bracelet with a giant bird on it. And he's like, like a my, real bird? Like or? a, yeah, like a bird. It was a gold bird. A he gold wanted a gold okay. bird with yeah. like diamond eyes but he's like, the deal is, my special move is the bird comes to life and it tears out my opponent's eyes. It pecks them out, and and Lauren's just like, just just say yes, just say yes. I'm like, we can't do that. Like that's not, <laughs> it's not technically possible. No, no, just say yes. Just okay, sure, ghost. Yeah, got it, got it. The bird comes to life. It got it. Then when we went back and did the sequel, he remembered that and he was like, dude, <laughs> you didn't do my bird. <laughs> He's like, where's my bird? He was so agitated. I'm like, he's gonna, he's gonna crush me right now because right. I didn't deliver the bird that he I promised. At least him. he played the game. He did. He did. Like, where's my bird? That's <laughs> all, all I wanted was my bird. Uh, so, which, which license was ended up being trickier to work with, NBA or Def Jam? Uh, I wouldn't say either's tricky. Like, yeah. I think the NBA definitely has more kind of regulations yeah, and hard kind rules. of how they're gonna go about things. I think. Def Jam was a great partnership because, you know, the the artists were really excited to be a part of the game. The the people that we were working with, Kevin Lyles was amazing as he's the president of Def Jam, um, and we had a great relationship. And so, I think the cool thing was that everybody kind of believed in what we were trying to build, as kind of inherently ridiculous and absurd as it was. But we were trying to build a world where this would kind of make sense if that's even possible. A right. lot of lot of inspiration from movies like The Warriors, you know, and like things that I grew up watching as a kid um, kind of came into play for, for that so, world. So, you know, EA over the years kind of takes a lot of public flack for, oh, you know, they, they don't take a lot of creative risks or they're, you know, they annualize all their sports stuff. But the, meanwhile, they're green lighting NBA Street, they're green lighting Def Jam. How, how, <laughs> How do they not? How do they even greenlight that? And you know, do, how far up does it have to go before to get to, to get the green light? And are and how does that even happen? It's what? It's <laughs> it's who? Sure, let's do it. Yeah, well, I mean, there's some some crazy meetings that happen, and uh, you know, you have to do your your best to convince people of your vision. But yeah. I think that there was just kind of a feeling of well, we're just going to build something awesome and and make people believe that it's going to be great. And it turns it turns out you know you made some really good video games that at the end of the day I mean that's got to feel good when you you have this nutty thing that thing that we were like at first you you literally seem to you've laughed it off and then it turns out you made a, a great video game that's got to feel good yeah I mean we were really excited as a team of you know about what we'd been able to do and um, I think for for fight for New York we tried to tell an interesting story within. The context of a fighting game, which really hadn't been done to the level that we did it before, giving you the freedom to kind of design your character and have your character show up as as you saw fit, um, and so it was a ton of fun working on that. Why doesn't NBA Street still exist? Do you think? Why do you think it, it went away? I I mean I have no idea. Such a great series. It it was a lot of fun. I think uh, there were some great sequels that that came out. Um, I just worked on the first one and then yeah. moved on. But yeah, it'd be great to see that series come back. So uh, you left to found Propaganda Games in 2005. Was that just, did you do that? Did you, did you leave EA just as a, you saw that as the next step of your career was to go 
own something and create something, or what, what was the motivation for, for uh, leaving EA to go found Propaganda? Yeah, so it was a, it was a small group of us. Um, initially, there were four founders, and then we, we um, brought some people that had worked with us on our team for, for Def Jam over as well. Um, but, I mean, the, I, the reason was just it was something that I had always dreamed of doing and that we were all excited about is striving out on our own and, and sort of taking on that challenge. And um, so we, we actually left in 2004. 2004. Sorry. Yeah, and then we, we started the studio late 2004. Um, and then we started, when we first started Propaganda, we had, we started pitching various different publishers on uh, new IP ideas. Mm -hmm. And there was a bunch of interest in us doing some kind of a fighting game. And we were kind of like, well, we, you know, we've done that. We want to do something new and different. Yeah. We were pitching a, a third-person action uh, game that had a lot of fighting elements in it, but it was kind of loosely inspired by the story of Oren Ishii from Kill, Kill Bill Volume 1, hmm. which was one of my favorite movies and, and like a, a character that I was really fascinated by. And so we, we were pitching that, and it was kind of more set in a sci-fi universe, but a lot, of, a lot of inspiration thematically from that. And strangely enough, Disney ended up being... Uh, somebody who got very interested because at the time they were they were looking at uh, expanding their footprint in games. Yeah, they've kind of they they seem to oscillate. Like sometimes they're scaling games way down. There there have been points where they've scaled way up, and they actually swooped and then they they bought you guys. They did. They acquired us. They acquired Avalanche Software in uh, Utah, in right? Utah and Salt Lake, who have have now they just celebrated I think their 20 year anniversary. So congratulations to Avalanche. Um, they're doing the Disney Infinity series now. Um, but we, we were brought in and we were supposed to be like the Miramax of gaming. They wanted us to be their kind of mature oriented studio that right. would do um, more mature content. And we were working on that pitch and then they, they acquired the license to Turok and said, hey, would you guys be interested in doing a Turok reboot? Mm. And for me, first person shooters have been one of my loves from very early on. First yeah. time I played Doom, it just completely blew my mind and set me on a course where, you know, I was, shooters became my, my number one uh, love. And, uh, and so the opportunity to do that was, was huge. I think it was also crazy as a brand new studio <laughs> to be like, yeah, let's build a studio from scratch. Let's take on a multi-platform first-person shooter the ambition from Disney at the time was like, this, this should be a shooter that beats Halo. You know, like, let's, <laughs> let's go beat Halo. And we're like, okay, that's crazy. Um, and they, you know, we had this Turok license. Halo 2 had just come out, no big deal. No, big, no big deal. Yeah, no, no worries. <laughs> we'll wipe the floor with them. Yeah, of course, yeah. But the, the thing that we found out was that the license that they had was for the original Turok comic book series. So then we, hmm. we were basically thrust into this situation where we had to build almost a new IP around the, right. the Turok brand. Um, we weren't able to use things like the Cerebral Boar, which is like a fan favorite weapon. Um, so we, we created a, you know, a kind of futuristic take on, on Turok that um, was, was a, a huge effort across the studio. Uh, it was a lot of fun to work on. Uh, what, what sort of, as you dug into Turok, what, what about it appealed to you? As, a, as an IP, as a... Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs and, <laughs> and, and weapons. And I mean, there's just so much, there's so much fun that's, that's a part of that. We wanted to create, uh, you know, a, a game that, where the dinosaurs were very reactive and 
they had AI systems that would respond to what the player could do. We, we introduced the, the flare mechanic where you had a secondary fire on your shotgun that you could use as a, as a lure for the, right. the dinos. So you'd create this kind of neutral AI adversary that you could then use against your opponents, whether they're the human opponents in your campaign or in, in uh, the multiplayer experience. We actually had raptors that were built into the, the multiplayer maps. Oh, I remember. Yeah. So it was... Uh, it was very ambitious, I think, for, for our team, but also uh, a ton of fun to play. So uh, what were your sort of overarching goals with Turok, and how do you think the game turned out in the end? How do you feel about it now, like 10 years later? I think, I mean, there are a lot of things I'm really proud of with that game. I think the fact that we were able to build that game as a brand new studio was crazy. Um, our goals were to create just uh, an amazing universe and an amazing experience. Um, we wanted something. I think we, we bit off more than we could chew as a new studio. You know, we were a trying a dinosaur pond? <laughs> no, but <laughs> could be. But I mean, we were trying to do multiplayer and campaign and, and all of these things uh, across that experience. And it, it was a lot to take on. And how many of you were there? We grew from, when we first started, we were like 20 people. And we grew to, on that team, uh, slightly over 100 people by the end of the, the project. Um, that's that's rapid growth. Very yeah, quickly. over the course of you know just under three years. Yeah. So. Uh, any regrets about Turok looking back? Um, I mean, I think you always have things that you would do differently, right? If you go back, and I think we would probably have focused on a smaller footprint of game experience and really. Is that another dinosaur to, reference? No. <laughs> you love the puns. I, you know, I gotta take them where I can get them. What can I do? Uh, now, you guys were also working on a game that I saw at E3 one year, Pirates of the Caribbean, Armada of the Damned, which, uh, granted, I only saw the E3 slice. I thought it looked great, because it reminded me of sort of a piratey fable, and I'm talking about, like, Fable 1 yep. back at that time, sort of an, you know, open-ish world action adventure. Uh, it ended up getting, getting canceled, obviously. What can you tell me about that project? Yeah, so, I mean... During my time at Propaganda, I grew the studio to the point where we had two teams. We had a second team that started working on uh, on pirates. Um, and actually, Dan Ayub, who works at 343, yeah. he was working on, on that title at the time. Um, and they, they started building the team up. And I think I left Propaganda in late 2008. The title was still being worked on. Um, and then... Yeah, at some point, Disney decided not to, to continue to, to make that game. But I thought the vision for the game was, was really you know, strong. It, it was very much about trying to give players a lot of choice in how they develop their character. Um, really, it was, an, it was a pirate's RPG and, and a lot of uh, exploration. And when you look at the... Or you love Sid Meier's Pirates. Love Sid Meier's Pirates, so, so that was huge. And when you look at the ship combat in Assassin's Creed uh, Black Flag... That was essentially the ship combat that, oh, wow. that they had uh, running when I left the studio. Um, so it was very, very impressive visually and, and also a lot of a lot of fun mechanically to, to play that. Does it leave a little bit of a hole inside as a creative person when, when something that... Because obviously Pirates got far enough along where it was shown at E3. Mm -hmm. And so does it, does, it, does it hurt a little bit when... Does it like still hurt when you kind of think back like, oh, that could have been really awesome if we could have finished that? I mean, I feel for the team that was working on it because as a creative and, and just a creator, anybody who builds something, um, you pour your heart and soul into sure. it. And 
there was a, a team of people that were incredibly passionate about building that experience and they had taken it um, pretty far and so for it not to to make it um, was I think really disappointing and and uh, and crushing for a lot of people so now we get to Halo to three four three how did you end up coming to Halo did do you call uh, Bonnie Ross do, do they call you Where, how does that how does that first those conversations first get started so I actually first started talking to um, Phil Spencer about uh, potential studio in in Vancouver and you know he made it clear to me that he didn't need another studio in Vancouver we'd been we'd been introduced um, and yet now we have the coalition yeah well he, <laughs> he, he did already have a, a studio in Big Park that that was being um, that was being worked with and and so we started talking about other uh, opportunities and you know he talked about the the different franchises across the portfolio and then mentioned that there was a team um, that was going to be working on the, the future of Halo right. and that was incredibly intriguing to me just because I've been a Halo fan since the original game came out on Xbox. It was the, the game that actually kind of pulled me across to, to the Xbox. You and um, me both. Yeah, so I, I you know, that was, that was a conversation that I was definitely going to take even though I wasn't thinking of moving my family or, or anything like that. And so I ended up talking to, to Bonnie Ross and to Kiki Wolfkill and, and Frank O'Connor and um, loved all of all of their uh, vision for where they wanted to take 343. Well, it wasn't even 343 at that point. I don't think we had that name mm -hmm. locked down yet. Um, and then kind of was at the same time feeling like, well, my wife's never going to go for this. We've lived in Vancouver our whole lives. She's not going to want to move. Yeah. Um, but when I spoke to her, she was open to it. And one thing led to another, and, and I moved down to Seattle after... Uh, spending some time with my family, I moved down in, in March of 2009 and joined. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The team. So I'm starting to see now from what you're saying, I wonder if part of the reason you might have appealed to them is because you'd already you'd built a team from scratch and worked on a major first-person shooter IP from basically just hit the ground running. I'm sure that... Uh, that must have that must have uh, upped your stock in their eyes. Well, that was something we talked a lot about. Um, and when I spoke to Bonnie, I, I would sort of say, "Hey, here are some of the things that we went through at Propaganda um, as we grew the studio, and we, yeah. we grew the studio very quickly. And and I think these are things that maybe I would have done differently if I were to do it over again. And and I think it was a great conversation, being able to to be open about that and and talk about how we wanted to." Build three four three and and um, and sort of take take stewardship for the whole franchise, not just 
build a game, but also continue to build a universe. Right. Um, for me, like part of the, the inspiration was definitely um, my love of Halo and, and how much it had affected me as a game designer, but also my love of Star Wars as a, as a universe and, mm -hmm. and sort of looking at Halo as, well, this is, this is a universe that has that same level of depth that speaks to me um, and that I could see myself if I were uh, a kid again today, it would have that same impact on me. And Bonnie's vision for where she wanted to take the universe and Frank as well and, and Kiki, uh, it, it really spoke to me. So <clears throat> favorite, favorite non-343 Halo then? If you're, you're, if you're, if you're, because we have ar arguments here. Yeah. You know, one or two, there are plenty of some Halo 3 folks. Uh, there's even like a little contingent of ODST people. Where do you fall? So I have to go with Halo 1 I, because it's the OG Halo. It's the one that made the biggest impact yeah. on me. It blew my mind as a designer when I played it. And it, it just got so many things right at the time. Um, if I were to say, like, where did I spend the most time playing Halo? Probably Halo 3. Like, Halo 3 was mm -hmm. kind of that pinnacle of just many, many focused hours, especially in multiplayer. Um, but Halo 1 will always stand alone as, as far as the impact that it had on me. Correct answer. Good job. <laughs> uh, I remember an early conversation I had with you and Frank. You had just joined 343, and there weren't many people on the team yet. Uh, you were hired to be the creative director on Halo 4. Was that correct? I was actually brought in as uh, I was actually brought in as a, a EP that was originally going to be working on um, on a on a shooter title, and then I actually came into the studio and started working as a as the franchise creative director for Bonnie, and then stepped into the shoes on on Halo 4 as the creative director. Shooter title. You want to back up a second? No. Is this a, is this a the Halo game that never no, saw the, the light of day? No, no. The, this was uh, this was you know kind of looking forward to where we wanted to take the next saga of games and and starting to build a team around that. Um, but I think being able to to come in and, and join the Halo Four team fairly early on yeah. um, was a was an amazing opportunity. So you end up the creative director on Halo Four. I'm curious, where do you even start with a, game, with, with a project like that when uh, you've got a new team and you're, you're taking over for uh, you know, another, another team's work and w what's this thing that's turned into a global phenomenon? Uh, the, the, the story arc had kind of closed after three and then obviously Reach was just sort of a, the prequel situation. So yeah, where, where do you even start from, a, from both a narrative perspective uh, which I know is more Frank's bag, but uh, from narratively and, and just as a design perspective, where do you even start with Halo 4? Well, I mean, I think we were, we were fortunate that we had a number of really strong people who had joined the team early on and, and started to build a vision for where we wanted to take Halo. We wanted to uh, look more closely at John as a character in Master Chief because up until that point, he had been largely kind of a, a vessel um, and we wanted to get inside the, the psyche of, of yeah. this individual. And um, Frank had sort of laid out where he saw the story of the universe going and, and how the canon would develop over, over the coming years. So it was, it was taking a lot of that inspiration and then sort of setting pen to paper and starting to you know, talk about, okay, well, what is the story we want to tell? And, and what are the things that fascinate us as a, as a team? 
what do we want to build? And, and I think as a new team coming into some really, you know, huge shoes, it, trying to take over from Bungie, just uh, a legendary developer, some, a developer that inspired me as, as a fellow developer for years, um, it, it was trying to walk that line of, okay, well, we want to do some things that are new and different, but at the same time, we want to be true to Halo. And, sure. um, and all the while, we're building an, a new team, and we have kind of a core nucleus of, of people and, and talented folks that are coming in because they have this kind of shared love and passion for Halo. Um, but we're all trying to learn what it means to work together and what it means to build a Halo game. Um, so it's definitely the hardest thing uh, in 20 years of game development that I've ever done. And I've spoken to people that were there with me on Halo 4 who would say exactly the same thing. Um, but as a team, we were just motivated to kind of do the impossible, which I think the, the challenge was, was pretty steep with Halo 4. Uh, what was the craziest idea that got seriously considered for Halo 4 before ultimately hitting the cutting room floor for some reason? The craziest? Either, either narratively or design-wise. Uh, the craziest idea was when somebody suggested um, using Connect Voice uh, interaction with Cortana throughout the course of the, of the experience, which I think at a, at a high level, is an amazing idea, the ability to actually pull that off and right. not, you know, maybe the rampancy would have saved some of the the uh, errors that might have happened <laughs> if we hadn't got all the speech recognition correctly. But but I think that would have been um, both an, an incredible accomplishment if we could do it, but just a huge amount of time that would have gone into it and, and maybe not been able to pull it off. So that was pretty nuts. Uh, now, I've, I've noticed in my career, a lot of game developers seem to kind of poo-poo their last game as they start to hype up their, their next one. Sports game developers are, seem exceptionally guilty of this. And I feel like you guys are doing a little bit of that with, with 4, like with the Vidoc, like, oh, hey, you know. We, uh, are you being a bit hard on yourselves from, for uh, about 4? Um, I think it's the natural tendency of, of anybody to kind of look at the thing that they've created and, and nitpick it and, and think of like, okay, what are all the things yeah. that we would do differently or that, um, you know, that didn't quite achieve our vision? Um, and that's part of what motivates you to go and, and build the next thing, right? As you want to, sure. you want to get better. You want it to, you want it to, um, to kind of do new things. And so there's, there's definitely some of that. The team's incredibly proud of what we accomplished with four and um, it's it's been great to to be able to speak to fans who you know the the story that we told in the campaign had a had a real impact on them and um, I feel I feel really honored to have been able to work with the material that we work with and and then to be able to work alongside such a talented team of people because we we have an incredible team at 343 that like kind of inspires me every day what are you most proud of looking back on Halo 4? And not just that, you know, we got it done, but like what's your favorite thing or like proudest thing about the game that, that stands out in your mind? So I, I'll just speak for me personally. I'm sure if you'd ask different people across 343, you'd get different answers. Um, but for me, it was around the story that we told in campaign and the balance that we strove to achieve. And I think we did a fairly good job of achieving in telling the small story with Chief and Cortana yeah. against the backdrop of like a big bombastic action experience. 
um, that would be the thing I'm most proud of. How about regret-wise? Is there something looking back on 4 where you're just like, man, I wish we'd, I wish we'd done this or I wish we'd, we'd nailed that better? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we're proud of the experience that we created across the whole game and, and in multiplayer, but I think when you look at the multiplayer um, as far as how it was able to sustain interest over time, there are some changes that we would make. And I think we tried to take two distinctly different experiences and kind of merge them into one. Right. And and you see us taking a different approach. Are you talking about more talking about like the the sort of traditional Halo experience with the sort of more modern uh, perk based stuff that had been popularized in Call the, of Duty? The kind of more casual approach to to the play experience and giving you more control as a as a player over how you customize right. your player and, and kind of giving you a toy box of different things and trying to bring that into an experience that is competitive. And, and the, the two, I don't think, were as, as kind of synergized as we had hoped. Mm -hmm. And so for, four, for five, um, the focus has been on, okay, well, let's create one experience in Warzone that kind of brings together all of this fun and excitement and, and just chaos and craziness of, of Halo and gives you all of these possibilities and all these ways to explore this toy box. And then let's create a, a competitive focused experience in Arena that maintains that kind of staple of even playing field, um, you know, power weapon control, map control, um, and, and then allow people, depending on their mood, to move between these two experiences. Right. I, gotta, I gotta ask, how on earth did you, so Halo 4 came out in 2012, uh, you know, this, the system had been out for seven years at that point. How, got, how did you guys get it to look that good? <laughs> Halo 4 looked amazing. I, I, heard, I heard that you guys were allowed to code to the metal, uh, sort of bypassing the normal rules of, of Xbox game development. Uh, where, where, does, where, does, where do those visuals from Halo 4 come from? So I, I don't know what code to the metal means. Um, <laughs> so anybody who said that, I don't know what they meant. But um, we I really, it was the, the collected knowledge and experience of our development team that was able to um, you know, squeeze every last bit out of the console based on what they had learned over the years of developing for it. And then just an art team that uh, you know, I have so much respect for in terms of their caliber and what they're able to do with with visuals. Some fantastic art direction, and then just to an individual, the the talent level of the artists at Three Four Three was really inspiring. And we have an incredible, you know, starting even before anything gets built, an incredible um, concept team uh, that was able to dream these amazing images that we were then able to bring to life. And, and our art director for Halo 5, Nicholas Sparth Bouvier, I mean, he was our, our concept art lead on 4, and really was one of the only people when I came to 343 that I was intimidated to meet. When I heard, <laughs> like, people were like, Sparth works here. I was like, Sparth. Um, which, if you meet Nick, is hilarious because he's this unassuming Frenchman who is the kindest, gentlest soul. But I had been following his work for years. Like our concept team at Propaganda worshipped the ground that Sparth walked on. They would like go and look what at all he the done speed before? drawings. Uh, Sparth is—I mean—he is so prolific in terms of of I mean, the last thing he worked on before he came to to um, Halo was he worked at ID um, with Kenneth Scott on okay. Rage. 
but I mean, he's so prolific in terms of his, his paintings and his style and the way that he has inspired concept artists around the world in the concept art community. I mean, he is just a pillar. And, uh, and so when I heard he was at 343, I ended up sitting nearby him and didn't even know I was sitting by him because he's so quiet. But uh, yeah, he, it was amazing to, to be able to meet him and now to be able to work with him day to day is, is great. So you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, having looking back, the sort of trying to reconcile the the casual and the competitive experience with Halo Four multiplayer. Um, you know, the, uh, apparently the, the the multiplayer population really fell off right coincidentally at the time Black Ops Two came out. Uh, and when when you see when you see uh, a lot of you know you, you don't get the legs you were hoping for maybe necessarily. Does that does that just like really hurt when when uh, it doesn't, when your people aren't sticking around as long as you hope they might. I mean, yeah, you you want people to be playing and, and loving and enjoying your game, and um, and I think you know, for for Halo Four, we still had a very strong, vibrant uh, population to this day. We have people that are continuing to play, and and both in the original and in uh, the Master Chief Collection. But certainly, yeah, we we would love to have you know been the thing that everybody was playing all the time uh, and and uh, I think for five we've really focused on okay we gotta step up our game and make multiplayer uh, a huge priority for the studio with four we were building the studio and so we we ended up partnering with certain affinity who is uh, amazing Max Hoberman Max Hoberman he's Original, fantastic. The, lead, the lead designer on Halo 2 multiplayer yep and uh, they did a great job working with us on four, but it was hard as two teams separated, you know, by states, yeah. um, where we would be building gameplay, and and then they would be having to react to changes that we were making. So for five, we we said, okay, well, we're going to double down on multiplayer. We're going to build multiplayer in house. We're mm -hmm. going to um, really scale the team so that we can deliver these two experiences that speak to different play styles. Um, and and really put all of the investment that we need to put into into building these, and we're going to make esports and co competition and competitive like a, a a primary pillar of the multiplayer experience because that's kind of Halo's legacy. Um, so that has been a big change for us and a big learning, I think. Do you think that that this you know more arena even starts direction of five? It, do you think it it sort of came as a reaction to? to fours multiplayer, or do you think you guys were kind of headed that way anyway? No, I mean, we, we were actually talking um, in the four time frame of like, even crazy things like, what if we created a, a completely separate experience that was just all core competitive? So there were a lot of discussions around, um, around really focusing on competitive as we move to the future, but for five, yeah, that, that was something that we were really passionate about, and, uh, and I think it, you know, it changes the way that the game plays at a fundamental level. When you're when you're having to to focus and fight over um, areas of the map and and really uh, lock down weapons, um, it it kind of creates a, a structure and a and a a back and forth that was lost in some of the chaos of of some of the matches in Halo 4's multiplayer. And it's nice to have that back. So I've played a bunch of Halo 5 multiplayer. We all have, because you guys did a multiplayer yep. beta at a crazy early time when it was actually a beta and not just like a marketing stunt. Yep. Uh, was there a moment in development during 5 with multiplayer where uh, 
you, you was there like an aha moment where you just went, we're on to something here? Oh, there are several. I mean, as you go through development of a game, you have these like little epiphany moments where things come together into an experience <clears throat> and, and everybody kind of sees what it is that you're, that you're building together. Um, and what we do along the course of development is we do things, we call them vertical slices, but they're just kind of trying to bring together all of the aspects of an experience so that you can stand it up and, and, and really kind of play it and feel it. And we did an arena multiplayer vertical slice very early on um, and had uh, one of the first maps that we took to completion, which is a map that we've actually, at this point, gone away from. It, it's not a shipping map. Um, but it, it kind of showed us how these new abilities that we had been prototyping and building um, could be used in an arena-style um, experience and, and how much fun it, it could be. We held a tournament across the studio. Everybody got really competitive um, and had a, had a ton of fun. Um, on the flip side for, for Warzone, one of the first prototypes that we did for that was um, the team put a couple of Promethean Knights into a Capture the Flag match and had them networked and working with the AI simulating and just seeing what it was like to have this neutral force pushing against you as you're trying to achieve your objective. That was kind of the first real proof point of that. And again, it was like lights just kind of went on as, as you played it. Yeah, and it seems like uh, some of those are set to legendary difficulty. Either that or my skills have just eroded way more than I want to admit. The, the AI bosses are super <laughs> challenging, and the AI bosses are something that kind of came in a little bit later into the development of that mode. Um, you know, the, the Warzone team has been very focused on iteration and, and discovery through the course of pre-production and then early in production, and, and uh, the... The mode is so different from anything that has existed in Halo before, so it required a lot of that. Um, it required the time to to develop, but couldn't be happier with the way it's come together. And you know, watching people play it for the first time at, at E3 was a great experience for all of us. So I know that you guys, your team, you run the Halo Five team. Mm -hmm. You know uh, that you didn't work directly on Master Chief Collection, but. Uh, I'm wondering if you can speak to how did the Halo 5 team react when, you know, there was just a lot of uh, a lot of problems with the, with the online launch and a lot of seemingly a lot of goodwill damaged uh, in in the community. Does does it just add a lot of pressure to to your team to like, man, all right, we gotta we gotta deliver here? I mean, I think it it definitely when the Master Chief Collection came out, <clears throat> there are a lot of things that. We took his learnings from that as far as how things operate differently within a test environment versus going out into retail environment across you know, large-scale populations, across multiple geographic um, regions. Um, we were already on pace to, to deliver uh, a beta as part of our development process, so yeah. um, we took a ton of learning out of the beta, and that was really helpful to us. Um, but you know, for us, it's it's important that we stand up on day one and, and deliver a fantastic experience, um, an experience that is really stable and, and one that all fans can enjoy across the globe. Um, and yeah, definitely there's pressure there, but I think the, the pressure would be there no matter what, because that's kind of the focus of the team. The team wants to build the best multiplayer experience. Sure. Uh, now, Black Ops 3, which has now turned into the biggest of the Call of Duty sub-brands, is out 
shortly after you, uh, as well as the Star Wars Battlefronts, going to be a big deal too. Uh, do you even do you worry about that stuff at all, or, or do you just have to to tune that out? I, I don't think as a developer you can really focus on any of your competition or worry about that. Um, I think for gamers and, and for myself, like I'm looking forward to this is a killer holiday. Oh there's yeah, so many Rainbow Six after that. Yep, Tomb Raider. There's so many great games that are coming out across multiple genres, and the shooter genre is going to be fantastic. Um, but yeah, as a, as developers, you just uh, you have a vision that you're building. You kind of want to stick to that vision and not be reactive to to other games, and and just have the the trust and the confidence that if you can deliver on that vision, that people are going to love it. Uh, how is development on now that you know you, you've got a your team has a game under their belt. How has development on Five gone in comparison to how it went on Halo Four? Uh, tre tremendous improvement in terms of knowing what it means to build a game together. So you have a level of confidence and understanding between team members of what it takes, um, and and a lot of trust in one another. I think at the same time, I'm losing my voice. Sorry, I'm, I'm drying <laughs> you out. I'm keeping yeah, you. It's okay. <laughs> We're almost done. I promise. I think at the same time, um, you know, it's, it's also a challenge when you move to a new platform, a challenge and an opportunity. Yeah. You kind of look at it as like, okay, what does this unlock for us? What are the different things that we can do now that weren't possible before? Um, but yeah, having, having shipped a game together, it's kind of like having gone to war as a, as a unit. You're kind of hardened by that process. And, and, uh, and the team, I think, has, has learned a lot through the, the process of shipping Halo 4. Uh you know, people, a lot of people are upset. People, people don't like change. They like what they're used to. Uh, so split screen has been a, a bit of a, you know, sticking point for people. Oh, you know, there, there's always going to be that group that, that they're in their dorm or whatever it is. You, you guys made the decision to cut it. Um, and obviously you, you make that decision based on a number of reasons. Do you have statistics available to you as a developer that, that can show, at least with the online connected consoles, how many people are actually using that feature, and how do you make that decision? Because obviously, it's not an easy one, and if in a perfect world, unlimited resources, it would all be there. But how do you how do you land a, a decision like that? Well, I mean, game development is always uh, a series of really tough decisions and trade-offs because you you're kind of limited in terms of the time you have and the resources you have, and and what it is that you want to focus on. For us, um, our focus was really on trying to deliver Halo at this massive scale and high fidelity and deliver 60 frames per second as a, as a kind of stake in the ground across the entire experience. And making the decision uh, not to, to ship split screen was really tough um, because for many of us, like many fans, like we've, we've enjoyed playing Halo uh, on the couch alongside friends and family. Um, but you know, really focusing on trying to deliver that experience that we're building across our campaign, across Warzone, across um, Arena, that was where we ultimately decided to, to spend our time and resources um, and make sure that that experience is the pinnacle of what it could be. Uh, if everything breaks right with Halo 5, what does that success, what does it all look like in your mind? Oh, I mean, I think we're delivering a campaign that is the much a much larger campaign and a much different campaign to Halo 4. Um, and I think we're taking a very 
unique and different approach in, in terms of the shifting perspective between two teams and an ensemble cast. And so I think on the campaign side, if, if people um, are intrigued by and love the experience uh, and the story that we're telling and have the desire to go back and play it um, online cooperatively with friends and take advantage of that, that um, commitment that we've made to online co-op, on the multiplayer side, I think you know it's it's about these two experiences and having people uh, move back and forth between those experiences depending on their mood and having a, a a reward system that keeps them engaged and feeling you know like like they're constantly unlocking new um, new parts of the experience and the experience is, is always expanding. I think you know it's for us it's no one it's not one thing because because it's about delivering this massive experience across yeah. Halo 5 and and I think success just looks like um, people enjoying all of those different uh, flavors that we're bringing to the table. Uh, what What's your favorite multiplayer map? Game's about to come out. It's, it's as of when this is airing, it's just, you know, the, we're on the eve of the game's release here. What's what's Josh Holmes' favorite map? What's the map that we should be looking out for? So I love the rig. I, I really love the rig, um, which is uh, a new map for Halo 5. It is a map that we've used throughout development um, from fairly early on to test a lot of the new abilities and has been inspirational um, in helping influence a lot of the other map designs throughout the game. Um, but I think it plays incredibly well across a number of different modes. And, um, you know, it's it's got a lot of verticality. It's got a lot of uh, different routes that you can explore and utilize as a player. Um, it plays well at varying different skill levels. Um, so that that is probably my favorite map at this point in Halo 5. All right. Uh, you talked earlier, last question, you talked earlier about coming in to the, uh, 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 taking on the Halo franchise, wanting to give more uh, of more personality, tell more about Master Chief. So I'll ask you, is the Chief's helmet ever coming off? Should it ever come off? Did you not finish Halo 4 on Legendary? I mean, Ryan? you know what I'm. Yes, we got we got eyes. <laughs> you got we got eyes. we got we got pale. What more, you, what more do you want? You saw <laughs> you saw the eyes, the, the the window to his soul. I I think. Um, Don't Neo Dodge Matrix dodge the question <laughs> no, on me here. No, I, I mean I. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen in the future? Um, I think Chief is a really unique character because. As much as you want to explore him as a man and, and kind of transform him as a character in, in important ways, he'll always remain that kind of rock, that, that stoic foundation to the, the franchise. And he'll always have an element of being the vessel that people pour themselves into. And I don't think we want to change that. And so, you know, it was one of the things we talked about. And Tim Longo, our creative director on, on Halo 5, um, we, we had long conversations around, you know, should... Should Chief and Blue Team, um, you know, be have their helmets off, or or not? And and uh, I think you know that's one of the differences when you see the two teams. Um, you know, Osiris is is a more humanized team, right. and you, you get to know the characters um, in a in a more kind of visible human manner. Whereas I think there's something strong and powerful about Chief and the Spartan Twos, kind of. Being these icons, you know that that um, are are kind of elevated in a way. You're not going to let them die on me at any at any three four three video game, are you? You have to play the game. <laughs>
Well, the game is out October 27th, or maybe out now by the time you're hearing this interview, depending when you watch it. Josh Holmes, thank you so much. I'm sorry I've broken your voice <laughs> okay, over the course you. of this hour plus, but uh, it's been fascinating to talk to you. You've had a hell of a career, and that career is only continuing with a bright future ahead with Halo. We're, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on Final Halo 5, as are uh, no doubt everybody watching this. So thank you, Josh. And for more on all things Halo, you're already in the right place right here at IGN. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.